if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 17. Two sermons left in our exposition of uh, Judges to be finishing up next week as we finish out the chapter. But today we'll be looking, or uh, as we finish out the book, today we'll be looking at chapter 17 and 18. I want to read chapter 17, then we'll work through some of chapter 18 as well in our time today. Um, judges, we're actually in a section of judges that few are familiar with, including myself. I was reading this past week, studying, preparing for this message. I've read through the Bible several times, but this is one of those stories I just don't remember. I just don't remember it sticking or something like that. And as I was reading through it again, I was just, uh, as we'll see, you know, can things get any worse for Israel? But yes, it can. Uh, just, just struck by this passage uh, in, in a way that I think God used to just awaken me to uh, certain things, uh, even in my own life. I want to read Judges chapter 17, um, then we'll walk our way through it together. Beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a, and, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man in, of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he sojourned, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Friend, what would you consider to be the supreme end of your existence. It's kind of a fancy way of saying, what's your purpose? What would you consider to be the supreme end of your existence? Why do you exist and for what do you exist? John Calvin once said this, we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. 
I'm not sure if you have ever given much thought to the great end of your existence. But I think Calvin is on to something. If your supreme, if the supreme end of your existence does not somehow include some, some reference or some aspect of pursuing the greatness and glory of God, if the supreme end of your existence does not somehow have in it a life that is driven to honor, to revere, to treasure God as the supreme king of the universe, then friend, you might want to consider and reconsider your own heart today. We are all worshipers. All of us. God designed us that way, and even if you are not a Christian, you are a worshiper. No one who has ever lived has truly been neutral when it comes to the reality of worship. The question is not, will we worship? The question, or questions, are, who will we worship, and how will we worship? Who is it that we are pursuing? What is it that we are treasuring above all else? Well, as we come to Judges chapter 17, I think there are some things for us to be informed about worship and really the the danger of idolatry, if you will. But when we come to Judges chapter 17, worship in Israel is as strong as ever. It is. We don't come to chapter 17 and find a worshipless Israel. In fact, what we do, we read this passage, we come and we see Judges chapter 17 and worship is part and parcel to all that they're about. It's central to the life of Israel, but there's one slight problem and it's not slight. Israel's worship is radically corrupt and flawed. Indeed, the condition of Israel in these remaining chapters of Judges is so bleak and sad that many Christians have just simply skipped them and many pastors have simply just gone right by them without even addressing them. What do you do with this? As you will see, these remaining chapters of Judges are very different than where we've been so far in Judges. So far in Judges, there's been a cyclical kind of pattern that we have walked through and, and, and seen and seen various, various figures come and go. We've seen Israel in sin and, and pursuing idols and then they're oppressed and then after a long season of oppression, they cry out for help and God sends them a, a, a judge or a savior, if you will, and for a period of time, they're brought out of that oppression and bondage and things seem to be back to normal and then that judge dies and they're right back to, to it again and on and on we go, and that just carries us through the book until really, in a big way, with Samson, it kind of just comes to a, I said last week, a smashing end, pun intended. Well, when we come to Judges 17 through 21, many have referred to these last chapters as kind of an appendix to the book. So today we're looking at appendix appendix number one, next week appendix number two. And what you will see in especially today's passage is that there's, there's no mention of oppression. 
There's no, no judge that's raised up. There's no indication of Israel crying out in repentance. There's not even a battle with Israel and another nation per se until we get on into chapter 18, but on a major scale. We don't see a lot of the similar things that we've seen previously. In fact, what we have in these remaining chapters is, is really more of a description, a documentary, we could say. This is kind of a documentary, just kind of following a regular, normal family in Israel and how they were living life. It's kind of, kind of helping, kind of like we're coming with a cameraman into this, this family and just kind of observing their life for a while. How are things going? What's, what's life like for the typical Israelite? And what we see is not a very pretty picture. So, what are we to make of this sad, depressing state? Well, while these chapters mainly are descriptive, I think they are quite instructive. It's just simply descriptive. There's no commands here. There's no commands given. There's no call for repentance. There's no immediate clear application or moral to the story, so to speak. It's just simply a description of life in Israel. But friends, it's quite instructive. There's quite a moral application, if you will, that, we can, be take, that can be taken from this passage. And it has everything to do with how it is that we approach God. Because what we see here in Israel is that their worship was being corrupted through idolatry. We're not talking about the Canaanites. We're not talking about the other ites. These are the Israelites. God's covenant, God's chosen, God's elect people that he called to himself and established in the promised land. These are the people that we're looking at. And so as we look at them today, as we look at how they went astray and went awry, I think that there are some very instructive points for us as we seek to honor God. So I want us to consider four observations about our worship and really four observations about idolatry that has very much everything to do with how we worship God. First, let's consider the subtlety of idolatry. For most of Judges, we've seen Israel fall into that idolatrous pattern. I've already mentioned that. And typically it came at a cost nationally as they would be overtaken by an oppressive enemy. What would typically happen is that Israel would forget God and they would see the surrounding culture and they'd say, oh, I kinda like the way they do this. And they would kind of go into that, and then before long, they were taken captive and oppressed by that same people. But many times, it didn't seem to bother them as long as life was okay. Well, as we enter chapter 17, again, it doesn't seem that Israel is under any kind of national oppression. They're under quite a bit of oppression, just a, a different kind of oppression. But neither do they have a king. And so again, this is kind of like a documentary-like description of life in Israel through the lens of a common family. And it doesn't take long for the reader, for us, to realize that Israel is in a moral and religious disaster. And yet, for the average Israelite, everything seemed normal and good. Could it be true that for the people of God, even today, 
that things could seem normal and good and right, and yet we be in a moral and religious mess? I think so. In giving an analysis of Israel's life, one writer summed it up quite well. Referring to these remaining chapters of Judges, he said, here the problem is not the enemy without, but the cancer within. And the sad reality was is that the people of God didn't even know they had such a cancer. They, they weren't aware of their horrific problem of idolatry. Even the narrator, it, just in the way this is written, if you're into kind of literature and the way things are penned, it's really written differently than the rest of the book. It, it even seems like the narrator just doesn't want to get, doesn't want to associate too closely with Israel. He's just kind of writing and saying, yeah, this is how things were. It's kind of the feel you get. It's just telling you how it was and don't, don't blame the writer, don't blame the messenger. This is just how life was. Just recording the facts. But friend, there is a, there's a clear warning here for us. It may be merely descriptive, but there is a clear warning. And the warning is this, just, it's, it, the warning is just how subtle and dangerous idolatry truly is. When Israel didn't wake up one morning and think, oh, I think we'll become idolaters today. I'm going to go to Facebook and I'm gonna like the Idols Are Us Facebook page. I'm gonna change my Facebook profile to an idol. I'm gonna do all these things. It was a slow, progressive decline. Happened over a period of time and it happened as they looked less and less to God's commands and became more and more impacted by the surrounding culture. Becoming blind to their own sin. Over time they became desensitized to their own rebellion, to their own sin, to their own shame. They became desensitized to the, the ungodly culture that was around them so that now what they were doing seemed normal and good. There, there's no sense of, of any kind of conviction here. It seemed normal to them, it seemed right. And it all began when they abandoned God's law. Verse six sums it up quite well. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was kind of a, a free-for-all. It was kind of do as you want. Seek God however you want to seek him. Again, we're not talking about the Canaanites. We're not talking about the Perizzites or the other peoples in the surrounding pagan nations. We're talking about the people of God. Friends, let this be a reminder to us. When people become authoritative about what is right and true about God, then idolatry is certainly inevitable. Even when people become authoritative about how we worship God, we have to be quite careful. Friends, idolatry is something that we are all prone to at some level, and all of us have been guilty of. Maybe you've never thought about yourself as being an idolater. Well, well in some way, you are. 
You say, well, I don't have the little incense at home. I don't have the, the candles. I don't do that kind of bowing down to some kind of figure. Well, you don't have to. Idolatry is much more than that. It's an issue of your heart, and it's an issue of what you're prizing above God. And friends, I will remind you that the, this is about the, the people of God, and, and we're, we're not talking about God's people just kind of replacing God initially with another God. They're actually seeking to worship the true God, but in a radically wrong way. The subtlety of idolatry. Let this chapter be kind of a megaphone type of warning to you because over time, you could just as easily find yourself as comfortable, as comfortable in idolatry as these people are here in Judges chapter 17, thinking all is well and good. subtlety of idolatry. I want to talk next about the marks of idolatry, and we'll spend some time here, wrap up the last two points and some shorter things to say about those. And as we talk about the marks of idolatry, I think that are demonstrated here for us today, there are are several observations that we need to make concerning the, the nature of idolatry. And we see that here in the text. First of all, idolatry seeks to reshape God. Idolatry seeks to reshape God. You see that in the first six verses. We're introduced here in chapter 17 to this young man named Micah. Apparently, Micah had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom, and his mom, upon realizing that silver had been stolen from her, pronounces a curse on the thief. Doesn't know it's her son. And so the son's like, oh, mom's done, went and cursed somebody for this. Things must be bad. And so he feels a little guilty, doesn't want to be the recipient of mom's curse. And so he comes to her and says, listen, I I stole the money. He quickly admits his guilt and brings back the silver. And look, look at this passage. Without blinking an eye, it seems, mom forgives him and reverses the curse and now blesses him. And you would think that's actually a good thing. And and sort of it is, right? There's kind of some family repentance going on and there's forgiveness being extended. There's grace being given, it seems. And you're reading there, hey, things may be good in Israel. Now, it all might seem like a great story that we should have reserved for Mother's Day next week, but verse three kept me from doing that. Because when you look at the rest of this verse, you will see why Micah's mom should not have received Mother of the Year award. Look at what she says to Micah. Verse three And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. That's good. To make a carved image and a metal image. No bueno, not good. What we have here is a complete rejection and disregard of the second commandment without batting an eye. Second commandment clearly forbade anyone from making an image of God. Friends, again, we need need to get our minds around what's going on here. These are Israelites who are apparently still believers in God. They, They still want to worship God. They still believe in Yahweh. 
And so this is not an attempt, at least here, to worship another God, as much as it was an attempt to craft their own way of worshiping God. And here the issue is images. They were wanting to reshape God into their own image, into their own liking, or for their own convenience. And so that's exactly what happens in verse four. Notice the 1,100 pieces of silver are given. She's like, I dedicate this to the Lord, but only 200 are actually used. She's gonna keep the other 900 for herself. A little greed issue going there. So she gives it to the silversmith and there's a carved image and a metal image that's made and Micah makes a shrine in his home and hires one of his sons to be the preacher. I mean, just, just seems so, so wrong, but yet we see verse six explains it quite well. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what they thought was right and what they thought they, what was best and what they wanted to do. And here it is with images. They're making an image of God, disregarding the command that God had given. And the problem with images, there's multiple issues with this. And I mean, not to mention the fact that God said not to do it, right? I mean, it's a clear commandment that was given, don't make any images. But listen, an image, the problem with an image is that an image can never, can never adequately and fully represent God. Even with the golden calf, right? God's not a cow. Gold, trying to show the, 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 the value of God. Well, you, you could never, you could never image God. This is the problem with images. This is why things such as icons and statues, which are statues which are predominant in, in Orthodox and Catholic cultures are a huge issue for Protestants. We're not bowing down to an image. I think it's a break of the second commandment. I, have, I even have issues with pictures of Jesus. But most of the time he's this white dude, which is completely inaccurate. He's not, not Middle Eastern looking. And, and so we, I just have issues with, I think it's a breaking of the second commandment personally. We could talk about that on the side perhaps. So I think to even look at a picture of Jesus or to create a statue of Jesus simply undermines the truth of his reality. It does. Tim Keller is helpful here. This is what he said. Worshiping God with images reveals an inward spirit which does not want to submit to God as he is, but wants to pick and choose attributes in order to create a God who is palatable to us. Mm. This is the danger. See, what we want to do, the issue at hand is really that we want to reshape and fashion God into the image we think is best instead of yielding to him as he is. I mean, look at how flippantly Micah approaches the worship of God. He makes idols to represent God and then ordains one of his sons to be priest. Friends, that would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. Here's what we need to know. We are called to worship God for who he is, not for who we want him to be. Called to worship God for as he is, for as he's revealed himself in the word, not for who we think we ought, he, he, how we think he ought to be, 
Have you ever heard people say, or have you ever said, well, I know that God is this way, but I like to think of God as, fill in the blank. That's idolatry. You're being an idolater at that point. You're you're corrupting the worship of God. I like to think of God this way. Friend, you don't get the choice. God has revealed himself in the word. Read the Bible, he's shown himself for who he is. Let God describe himself and submit to his own self-revelation, not your own creation of who you think he ought to be. God is who he is. He's always been and he always will be and we can can either embrace that or not. One thing we can't do is change him. This is exactly what Mike is trying to do. He's trying to reshape God into kind of a convenient God. Two, idolatry seeks to reduce God. Look at verses seven through 13. We have this Levite that comes along the way from Bethlehem and Judah and stops on his journey and talks to Micah. Micah asks him a few of the kind of questions, where are you coming from? And he's like, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem. And immediately, Micah's like, oh, this is a Levite. This is like a legit priest. Why don't you stay with me? Dude, I'll pay your salary, I'll give you some clothes. All will be well. Why don't you just stay here, be to me like a father and be my priest. Kind of my self-pay pastor, all right? And he says, okay. Okay, I will. So, which, by the way, I want you to, I want you to notice something here. This demonstrates that Micah had some familiarity with the scriptures because he knew that only a Levite could be a priest. And he had already broken that command by making his own son a priest. And now a Levite comes along and he's like, oh, okay, like here's the real one. And so he understands some level of God's law and scripture, but but he he was totally willing to throw it aside for the sake of convenience early on. And now he's kind of making up for, oh, here's actually some, some, some real Levite blood that we could use as our priest. It's a danger, friends, when, when we're so willing to go against God's truth for the sake of convenience. Even when the priest agrees to Micah's request, it demonstrates that the motive of the priest is a very selfish one, a very greedy one. You see that in verse 13. Micah's heart was greedy. Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Micah. Must have been a regular viewer of our friend Creflo or happy friend Joel, huh? He he just wanted prosperity. And all he did, all, all he saw God good for was how much he could get out of God for his own comfort, for his own prosperity, for his own welfare. At this point, it wasn't God or even the images Micah had created to represent God that he was concerned about, it was himself. 
So not only had he sought to reshape God, he was now reducing God to be some kind of servant to him. Because we must be careful in how we approach God, not to somehow reduce him to be something he never intended to be. He is not someone to be manipulated or controlled for your own good. How many times, though, do we approach him that way? Yes, even us. Even us right here in this room. How many times do we make empty promises to God, wanting him to bless us or somehow remove some burden from our life? Lord, if you will just do this, I will do that. Keep me free from sickness and hardships and poverty and crisis and certainly give me heaven. How often do we expect or even demand God do something for us, but we ourselves have no intention of seeking him rightly or serving him at all? We reduce him to be like this genie in a lamp kind of thing, that God exists to just bless when I need blessing. Idolatry reshapes God, it reduces God, it also replaces God. When you read into the chapter 18, the narrative continues with the tribe of Dan. This is not Dan Doy, this is the tribe of Dan. It's a little bit before Dan's time. And the Danites, part of the 12 tribes of Israel, looking for land to settle. I should raise a little flag in your mind because we're in Judges. It was Joshua, the book before Judges, that Israel was to go conquer the promised land, right? Dan, they're still struggling. They're still looking for some property. They're still, they're still looking for that, that piece of land because the land that they were allotted, they did not drive out the Canaanites there. Canaanites were very entrenched in that part of the, the, the promised land and, and Dan didn't do what God commanded them to do. He didn't drive them out. And so now they were still wandering, looking for land and looking for a place to settle even now in the end of Judges virtually homeless because they had, eradic they had not eradicated the Canaanites as they were commanded to do. So now they're in the hill country looking for some good farmland to settle. It was a struggling smaller tribe who like Micah had not regarded the commands of God. That's evident because they're looking for properties. They're looking for land to settle. And they were very prone to any kind of worship that benefited them. That's evident from the text. So let me just read We'll read parts of chapter 18 and kind of fill in the rest. Verses one through six. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's a refrain, by the way, that's important. We'll get to that in a minute. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are settling out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace, 
The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. And so in verses seven through 13, they go and they encamp against an unsuspecting people ready to attack them, the residents of Laish. But before they attack, they go back to Micah because there was something there that they thought they might find helpful. So they go back to Micah and we're gonna pick up in verse 14. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in the houses there are an epid, household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods and the metal image while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 armed men with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us. Be a father and priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest of a whole tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod, the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. What we see in these two chapters is clear. Everyone, the people, mom, the son, the Levite priests, the Danites, all of them, they're only out for one pursuit. Remember what we said earlier? What is the supreme end of your existence? If you were to ask all of these people in this story so far, what is the supreme end of your existence? They would say, me. Micah wanted prosperity. The Levite priest was just wanting where he could, he just wanted to go where he could make the most money. The Danites wanted victory so they could have land. All of these people had one pursuit and it was self. It's the idolatry that was present in this passage was ultimately a replacement of God with themselves. They see God really as nothing more than a good luck charm, a means to their desired end. Prosperity, wealth, whatever, whatever it is that they wanted. God was just kind of a, a means to get that, a, a channel through which blessings would flow. And as a result, all of the Danites, we read later on, they conquer the people, they erect their own shrine, and they put Micah's household gods in it. See that in verses 27 through 31. What we find striking in chapter 18, except for, except for the last verse, is there is virtually no mention of God in this chapter, no reference of God whatsoever a complete departure. At least Mike and his mom had God on their horizon. And certainly the Danites wanted his blessing, but as things go on, there's, there's no reference. As they set up this shrine, there's, there's no reference of God. That's the ultimate result of idolatry. 
We begin with a confused, perverted worship where Micah attempts to worship God via idols and now God's not even, not even in the picture, complete departure. One of the things that I, as I thought about this passage that I'm just trying to get my mind around is how do we know? How do we know when we too are guilty of idolatry? And idolatry includes a syncretistic kind of worship of the one God, well, one true God. So even in our approach to worship God, one true God, we can become idolatrous by, by manipulating that in a way that, that we think we're worshiping him when in reality we're just worshiping ourselves or worshiping something completely different. So as I thought about that, I thought, what is the difference between false worship and true worship? False worship and true worship. Well, false worship includes several characteristics. It's man-centered, self-focused. It's about me, my feelings, my desires, my wants, my thoughts. It loves forms more than it does God. I think that's a danger even for, for us, even for me. Loving an aspect of worship more than actually the object of our worship. Three, it desires prosperity more than it does God. Four, it disconnects worship from a lifestyle. Right here you see that, that's evident, isn't it? I mean, they're setting up these shrines. They, they think that worship is there. God's there for their prosperity. They're, they're wanting to reshape him and fashion him in what's convenient for them. But there's, there's no life of worship. There's no Romans 12, one and two kind of commitment here, is there? They don't see their lives as, as all encompassing uh, in, in their approach to God. They're disconnecting the two. Their worship led to disobedience, actually. That's what false worship does. And, and number six, we could say many more things, but number six, it neglects God's word completely, completely. True worship, on the other hand, is God-centered. Everything is done in life. I'm, just, I'm not just talking about a corporate gathering. I'm talking about all of life is, is approaching God as the supreme end of your existence. His value, his worth, his treasure, his, his glory is what you are about, Period. It's driven, it's fueled by the authority of Scripture, not the opinion of man. God's word informs us of who God is. God's word expresses how we can express our life and our worship to him, not coming up with our own methods and creating our own little idols. Number three, it involves all of life. Life is a sacrifice of worship. It involves self-denial. Whether you're gathered in a corporate setting or whether you're living out your life in obedience to the Lord as, a, as an act of worship to God, you are more concerned with God's glory and with making much of God than you are making much of you. So willing to just deny yourself for the sake of making him known and honoring him. And true worship results in obedience, not disobedience. A lot more that we could say, but I think we know that we're guilty of idolatry when we have 
created an approach to God that is self-serving, that is convenient, that is dependent upon what we think is best and right about God. We see that idolatry reshapes him, it reduces him, and it ultimately leads to replacing him. Then I want us to see the tragedy of idolatry. The tragedy here is that idols cannot produce what we truly need. Idols cannot produce what we truly need, and yet idolatry is something that is so attractive to our depraved hearts. We are so drawn to it. So much tragic in this text, and and then to cap it off, we kind of have a surprising end to the story. In verse 29, the Danites finally defeat some people and take over a city, and they rebuild a city. They call it Dan. But it's not the city that's so surprising. It's who's in the city that's kind of surprising. Look at verse 30, chapter 18. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves there in their new city. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Here we're introduced to this man named Jonathan and his sons. Jonathan and his sons are now the priests leading the Danites in corrupted worship of the true God through these idols. Friends, here we have none other than a direct descendant of Moses. Some of your texts say Manasseh, but the actual transliteration is clear that it is Moses in who this passage is talking about. a descendant of Moses, likely his grandson. And if it's not his grandson, it's a a generation or two removed. None other than the direct descent of Moses, the great lawgiver, the leader of God's people who came out of Egypt. Descendants of Moses now conducting services for the idolatrous Danites. And this entire account is so sad, but it's here to instruct us. It reminds us that God's people are not automatically immune to idolatry, not even Moses' own grandson. What a reminder for us to carefully guard and pass on the faith to others. I think it was D.A. Carson that said, one generation knows the gospel, the next assumes it, and the third loses it. Friends, we have a stewardship. We have a deposit to guard, as Paul told Timothy. We have something that we are to protect and to preserve. And don't think just for a moment, just because Grandpa was godly, so am I. It's not how the faith passes. Praise God for godly family who came before us. Friends, we are responsible to receive that message and to to respond to that message. I think that this is a, you know, when you stand back and you kind of look at this passage, what what a warning against unfaithful parents and unfaithful preachers, right? I mean, that's what we have here. We have a mom who completely corrupted the worship of God, taught her son to do the same, 
Parents who were not investing in the next generation with, with truth. They were corrupting truth with something else. And we have these money-hungry priests that come along that all they cared about was their, their next gold-plated chariot. They didn't have jets back then. Friend, one of the things that this passage ought to do is when you read it, and when you just read it and you lift up your eyes and you say, by the grace of God, please, please God, do not let me fall prey to my own idolatrous heart. It's a tragedy. But then we have a cure, a cure for idolatry. I wish that I could say that this story ended up with some miraculous event that resulted in a great revival in Dan, all right? Great revival that took place in Micah's household. There's no mention of that, no mention of anything of the kind. For all we know, and what's indicated here in the text, Micah returns home empty, empty-handed, no more gods, a life that was founded upon empty promises, a shelf now that was idolless, unless his mom would give some more silver so he could go make some more. There's no, there's no revival. It's depressing. In fact, that's how the book of Judges ends. You can just jump ahead. Still come next week. You just jump ahead and that's how it ends. In those days, last verse of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No revival. No repentance. None of that. But when we read in this chapter, we, we see a glimmer of hope, you've got to dig for it, but it's there. Two times, two times in chapter 17 and 18, we're told in those days there was no king in Israel, which kind of alerts the reader to, okay, that's a problem. No king in Israel, that's kind of emphasized here, and that's problematic. Part of the, the way the people of God, the, one of the reasons the people of God were the way they are, they had no leader. They had no one there to guide them and shepherd them and direct them in the right way. There was no king, no leader. Everyone just did what they wanted. A king was needed. And later on, God would provide one. First, we know that the man by the name of David came. King David. He restored everything that would, was right and good in Israel when it came to the worship of God. It would be his son Solomon, the next king who would come along and actually reconstruct this glorious temple so that the worship of God could take place right there in the city of God. But neither David or Solomon, as much as they did, could effectively produce lasting change in Israel. It wouldn't be until David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's often referred to as the son of David, until he would come. And it would be in Jesus where God's image would be perfectly on display. There's no need to come up with your own because God sent his son into the world. And if you want to see God, you can look to Christ. It would be Jesus that would bear the perfect image of God and it would be Jesus that would rescue God's people and rule God's people perfectly forever. Jesus is the cure for idolatry. 
Jesus is the cure for everything that is wrong and broken in this world. He is the perfect prophet who reveals God faithfully. He is the perfect priest who can lead us to God rightly, and he is the perfect and eternal king who will reign over us forever. Jesus is the cure. And because Christ has come, things are not as they once were. By God's goodness and by God's grace, we do have a clear and certain future if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, hear this. God sent forth his son into the world to save sinners. That's what we are. He lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a life of perfection. And yet he died upon a cross to bear the payment and penalty for your sin. If you would simply trust in him and believe in him, you would be brought into the kingdom of God secure forever and ever. And that is your hope. And because of Christ, things are not as they once were. Because of that, we have a clear and certain future. But we also know that this side of heaven, things are not as they will one day be. This world with its allurements is still strong and our flesh is still weak. Idols are still a huge distraction. Perhaps that is why the apostle John, well after Jesus had come and gone back to heaven, wrote in the final verse of his first letter in the book of 1 John, New Testament, very last verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, he says just simply this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Why would John say that? Jesus has come, he's delivered, he's ascended back to the Father. The gospel's now advancing and he says, I mean, he doesn't even say, call me later. Keep yourself from idols, period. Seals up the envelope and sends it on its way. But he also says something else, just the verse before that. You see, John knew the struggles of idolatry would continue to hinder us until we get to heaven, but he also reassures us and gives us every motivation to do just what he commanded in verse 21. Keep yourself from idols. In verse 20, he gives us the motivation for doing that where he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the cure. He is the true God. He is the one that you can trust and have full understanding. Keep yourself from idols. Look to Christ and flee from idols. Friends, may that be our response we would flee from idolatry, that we would cling to Christ, and that we would serve him and honor him all our days. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Lord, even in giving us these unedited descriptions of your flawed people, so many years ago. 
Lord, this is a, a gift of your grace to us. In the good times and in the bad, to show us, Lord, to warn us, to instruct us of just how prone to idolatry, how, how prone to sin and self-gratification we truly are. Father, my prayer is that this word today from Judges, that this, this word that you have given us, Lord, would just awaken us. God, if anything, that it would just keep us faithful, that it would remind us of how easy and how prone to wonder we truly are. Father, would you search our hearts even now? Would you expose in us, to us, Lord, those idols that we are clinging to? Would you show us, Lord, ways that we are seeking to reshape and reduce you? Father, would you just give us eyes to see you for who you truly are, not for how we want you to be? And Father, would you give us the ability even to repent of those selfish, idolatrous tendencies that are so prevalent. God, we want to honor you. We want to worship you as you are. We want to see you for who you are. So Lord, would you open our eyes and give us clarity? Would you help us see with biblical faithfulness and precision the reality of who you are so that we could follow you in the manner in which you have called us to? God, would you keep us from idols? Would you keep us, Lord, from from ourselves. God, we love you. And we thank you that you perfectly love us. And how you've demonstrated in giving your son to rescue us. We pray this in his name and for his sake, amen.